This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 65, which is first airing in late October. If the sound quality is a little worse on this, we apologize. Hopefully it isn't. We're using a different system this time. We had some issues with our normal uh, Zencaster as the software we use to record, um, and we opened it up this morning, and it was just not there. <laughs> so we're still sorting that out, uh, what exactly happened. Uh, but we used Skype uh, this time, which Skype is a great tool as well. I, I use it all the time um, for doing interviews and talking with people, and so uh, we're using the files from that. and. It never fails. When we have a guest we are so excited about interviewing, we, we wind up with these technical difficulties. We have 
Kimmery Martin, who is a novelist, the author of the book Queen of Hearts. Um, she is an emergency uh, re- emergency medicine physician as well, a mom of three kids. So we're very much looking forward to that part of today's episode. But before we get to that, um, I so you know we've talked about it before. In the Gretchen Rubin tendency realm, I am an upholder. So typically, if I'm going to say, if I say I'm going to do something, it, it does get done. But, you know, there's a lot of to do's in life. And I will say I tend to sometimes prioritize the urgent over the important. And it was important to both Laura and I that we do as a survey that we talked about um, a month or two ago, but it just hasn't, it hasn't come down to pike. Well, I am going to turn this into an urgency by mentioning on today's podcast <laughs> because <laughs> I feel that by the time this, you know, the, the goal is that with this podcast, the survey will be available. So that will force us to have to put it together um, and make sure that it comes to fruition. So, yeah, we're going to be asking you guys to contribute your thoughts about our podcast thus far and what you like and what you don't like and recommendations. And, you know, if you've always wanted to submit a question, this will be the time. I'm also wondering if, if I don't know how much it costs, but you know how some people have those like voicemail questions or people can talk? I'm going to look into figuring out if we could do that. I mean, actually, it would be as easy as emailing us a sound clip. I don't know if people are going to take the time to do that, but um, you never know because I think it would be kind of cool to hear some questions in um, the voice of our questioners. So anyway, that is that is coming up. Should we yeah. do a little teaser of some upcoming topics? Yeah, so we've got some upcoming episodes that we're excited about. Well, we, we don't have some of these books yet, so we want to do um, talking about the topics that I know people have asked us about, things like single parenting, um, personal finance, um, hearing from some men, uh, which we are completely open to doing. Uh, we, we've got a couple of fun things coming up on, um, oh, kids sleep. We're going to be talking about, um, actually, that already came out. Sorry, we're recording at a different time. We're going to be doing um, a episode on planners because we know that that was exciting. We've got one coming up on emotional labor, big topic in the world. Yeah, we're going to be doing, you know, talking about uh Professional firms, the process of uh, making partner at, at those kind of places, um, that's, a, that's a big one coming up. Um, we're talking about combining uh, parenthood with a serious illness, also a fascinating topic. So a lot of good stuff. Uh, hopefully people will keep listening and sharing this podcast with their friends. Well, we are so excited to have Kimmery Martin with us on the show this week. Um, this is Sarah. This was actually kind of my idea because I have recently read Kimmery's major hit of a novel, The Queen of Hearts. And I will tell you the backstory. I read it and I didn't look at all at her background. And Kimmery, I was like, this person knows medicine. Like, <laughs> it was very clear this was not written by some somebody who wasn't in that world, but I just thought maybe someone had done a lot of research. And when I looked at the back, I was astounded to see that you are actually an emergency medicine physician and still practicing, or at least you were. And I was just fascinated about that journey. So, and I will tell you, I loved your book. I devoured it in like 48 hours or something ridiculous. So yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show and talk about your career trajectory and how you make things work. I know you have three little children and, you know, whatever you have, whatever wisdom you have to impart on our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I can um, offer wisdom, but I'm happy to chat with you guys. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your career background? I mean, what led you 
into medicine originally? Yeah, so I was kind of a late bloomer in college and really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I've written a bunch of uh, blog posts about publishing and writing and medicine, and I, I think in one of them I fessed up to originally being attracted to the practice of medicine when I read about it in a novel, and there was this uh, just absolutely badass surgeon, uh, a woman, and I thought, well, I, c I could do that. <laughs> And I was working on a senior thesis in college for my psychology major where I was in a hospital interviewing families of children who had life-threatening illnesses, and I wound up being kind of interested in the medical aspects. And so I doubled up on all the science courses and got kind of squeaked into medical school at the last minute. Wow. So you did you end up taking a year off between college and med school or did you you ended up you, you actually were able to make it work and went straight through? Yeah, no, I'm a I'm a scholastic machine when I want to be. <laughs> I just worked really hard. <laughs> Love it. And then how did you choose emergency medicine? And did you always know that you wanted to write? Like, were you thinking? And I know there's there's actually I can think of at least one other author. Oh, man, I'll have to remember. His, you probably know of him. He actually is also a North Carolinian, and he was friends with somebody that I knew when we lived there um, who's an ER doctor. Anyway, did you think that that would be a good mix because the shift work would lend itself to kind of having other things to do, or did that evolve more organically? Oh, totally organically. So the theme in my life is that I never seem to have a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> And the same was true in medical school. I actually started in general surgery um, because I, I loved operating. I loved the, the technicalities of it and the intensity of it. And so I did an internship in general surgery and really did like it, but I decided to switch to emergency medicine. So that did require me to take a year off uh, during which time I moonlighted, and then I went back through the match and wound up at Vanderbilt for emergency medicine. And I love ER. I mean, I love the um, complexity of it and the randomness <laughs> and the, you know, the opportunity to just walk into a room and immediately make a difference in someone's life right there really appealed to me. That's awesome. I, I always feel like ER is so fun from a diagnostic perspective. I mean, you guys you guys get the freshest cases because by the time they get to someone like me, I'm, I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. It's like, you know, yes, we're figuring out the details, but like, for example, I don't get to diagnose diabetes anymore. I kind of miss that. Not that I wish diabetes on anyone, but like, I never get to see that initial scene when someone comes in and doesn't know what's going on. So you, I think you guys are really lucky um, from that perspective. Are you continuing to work full-time currently? Uh, I'm not working full-time currently in the ER, I actually haven't, I'm sort of lapsed. I haven't been in the ER for probably the past two years. And partly that is because I could not manage to make it all work with writing full-time and practicing medicine full-time and having my family full-time. So when I started the novel, I was working full-time. And originally, I had no idea whether I could write or not. I'd never written anything before. Once it became clear that the novel would be published, and especially once my publishers wanted uh, a contract for more books, I decided to shift uh, careers. And around that same time, I had this really serendipitous, fortuitous thing happen, which was someone offered me a job. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a, a very financially oriented city where the downtown is pretty much all big banks. And so someone offered me a job in one of the big skyscrapers uh, downtown where there's an allergy clinic. 
And the financial people would come in to get their allergy shots without having to leave downtown. And they just wanted an ER doctor on site in case anyone anaphylaxed. Oh, that's awesome. So I was getting paid to sit (laughs) in a little room and do nothing. And for the first time in my life, I was wearing real clothes to work. (laughs) I felt like a grown-up. I had my coffee and my little briefcase and my computer. Um, So it was was just such an awesome opportunity. I took it, and then that allowed me to – to finish the novel and get it published. So oh, you said you didn't. Amazing. Yeah, this is Laura. You didn't know that because you hadn't written anything. You said, like, what made you think, like, let me just start writing a novel then? Or did you ease in by doing, you know, other other kinds of writings first? No, I did everything best backwards. I started writing the novel with no clue how to write a novel. But I think the reason that I did it was because I love books. I'm just the biggest book nerd. I love to read. I have always read at least three books a week. And authors are the people I admire. I just, I love the concept that you can have a voice that's that's somewhat permanent. And you can, you know, the ability to write down things and share them with the world really appealed to me. Um, mainly, in my case, not out of any big altruistic thematic desire to, you know, make a statement, but more because I like to be entertained with books. <laughs> um, but I read everything. I mean, I read fiction, nonfiction, all genres. I read magazines and articles constantly. And once I started writing, I was immediately hooked. I just, I knew I loved it. Well, I am totally impressed and inspired. And I mean, have you found that this is a common theme amongst physicians? Because Oh, so I remember who the other author was. It was Paul Austin, who was actually also a North Carolina ER doctor. I think he worked near Durham or, you know, one of those hospitals farther east. And his was more of a memoir. But um, there aren't that many, but I feel like there's a lot with aspirations. And I will, you know, admit that I am one of them. I don't have a fiction um, idea in me currently, but I still feel pulled to write. Now, I've done that via a blog, which is not been, um, you know, a part of my real career for the last 14 years. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, now I'm starting to wonder, and I know that there are probably others like me, if, if I could do something like you have done, maybe not quite on as large a scale. I don't, I don't think I'm going to make the kind of splash you did, which is really remarkable. But yeah, what advice would you give to others, either in medicine or maybe law or something else, that might be interested in pursuing writing as kind of a side thing and maybe bringing some of the expertise from their work world the way you did. Oh, I I have so many thoughts I might choke. Hold on. Let me me assess. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, there are a lot of doctors who write. I mean, I think that there are, there's something inherent in the brains of people who are somewhat scientific that also makes them creative. I, I think you have to be, you have to have some degree of creativity to be a scientist or a um, doctor of medicine. And so while there are not a huge number of physicians who have published fiction, there are a huge number of physicians who write. And I know this because I'm in a bunch of groups with them. I'm in one online Facebook group of, of just women doctors who are also mothers who also write. And there are 1,000 of us. Wow. And as a matter of fact, I got a call out of the blue, I think, uh, last spring 
from um, a man who says that for many years his CME company has sponsored a conference. It was led by Tess Gerritsen and Michael Palmer for years um, called Fiction Writing for Physicians. And I'm actually teaching it this year or next year in Florida in January. Um, and I think they have a pretty good sign-up rate. Like there are, there are many, many physicians who want to tackle writing. And when it comes to writing fiction – you know, the absolutely ubiquitous advice that everyone gets is write what you know, right? I mean, you, you hear that, write what you know. And for debut authors, that's particularly important because, uh, at least in my case, I didn't know how to write. And so figuring out how to write and learning a whole new topic would have been overwhelming. Um, but people are, are people are drawn to the practice of medicine. They're drawn to stories about that. You know, it, it touches on all the big life or death, super intense um, highly dramatic things that make for good fiction. I fully believe that. I've, my husband and I, he's also a physician, we've constructed many. One of our favorite sort of joking things to do is construct ridiculous plot lines around things related to our work. Like I had this whole, like, I, I, I treat some transgender patients, so I was like some, like, bizarre transgender love triangle that takes place. In it. So, okay, I'm glad you, I like, love it. <laughs> I'm glad That's it's, like, awesome. of actually bringing, you know, your, you did do that, Um uh, how do you, from a patient, obviously you can't share specific stories, but what if you're sort of inspired, but how do you make sure that, you know, where's the line between violating privacy, which obviously we never, ever want to do, and writing about what you know? Have you ever struggled with that? Not not terribly, although I did have, I did include in my book a number of patient vignettes, some of which were loosely inspired by things I'd seen or thought I'd seen or things I'd heard. And, and of course, the rule is you just cannot use anything that's recognizably a specific person. I think if you want to be inspired by the multitude of ridiculous and tragic and impactful and funny things that you've seen, that's fine. You just can't, you can't make it be anything that anyone would know as a specific person. Got so it. change the aspect of something without having any, okay, that's helpful actually. That's helpful. Cause man, I got a lot of aspects and I did used to actually, when I was much younger, share more, not specifics to patients, but more features. So I feel like I have this treasure trove to go through someday. No, that's, that's great. Oh, so, you do. You do. Your mind is full of that stuff. Trust me. Yeah. So Kimberly, um, you know, while you're managing that, obviously you were starting your novel while you were uh, working as a physician uh, in the ER. You also have three young kids. Where did those come into uh, the, the whole uh, life trajectory of, of Kimberly. When did you wind up having them? Oh, okay. So, well, first of all, I'll say my kids were terrific fodder for the book. <laughs> <laughs> of course. They always are. Like, that, yes. I mean, if you have kids, milk those little suckers for everything they say and do because it's funny. <laughs> um, so I have three. They're currently 14, 12, and 8. And I guess, you know, like a lot of doctors, I kind of had mine on the late side. Um, I think I was I was 32 when my oldest was born. Oh, wow. So now you know how old I am. <laughs> I'm going to say that while we're like copies because I have the exact same age spacing and started at the exact same time. So oh. I right now have six, four, and nine months, and I'm 38 years old. So like we are mirrors. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know what? That was a pretty good way to do it. Um, my youngest is six years younger than my oldest and four years younger than my middle. And that worked out really great because the big two were in school. Like it's the, it's the baby toddler combo. That's so deadly. I think. Totally agree. I've said that. That's so funny. Yes. And I like my spacing too. <laughs> 
Um, so with the yeah, so, kids being like, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, in terms of work-life balance, I think I am no role model. Because <laughs> um, that's the question I probably get more than any other is, you know, how do you do it with the kids and the book and the working? And uh, the truth is I really do everything kind of crappy. Um, I, I forget stuff all the time. And I, I'm lucky enough to be able to hire help. I, I look at these other writers most of whom are struggling financially because for some reason the world does not financially reward creativity in the manner that I wish that it would. <laughs> so most writers are really struggling and um, I try to outsource everything I can that isn't essential to be me and I still struggle. So what is but, one of the more creative things you outsource though that buys you time? Our, our listeners are always looking for stuff like that. Oh, well, there's nothing creative at all about it, but I, um, I outsource cleaning because I stink at that. <laughs> and a lot of times we just live in filth, I'll be honest. If, um, if <laughs> there's a lot of times I just can't get it all done. I do. I mean, the other thing with three kids is I hire people to help drive us around to all the stuff. You know, we're always trying to get to soccer at the same time as gymnastics, at the same time as field hockey, at the same time as lacrosse, and at the same time that I have a meeting. And I try to do a lot of volunteering, too. And so short of cloning myself, I I really do rely on other people, other mothers to help me or I hire someone. Yeah, and we're definitely big proponents of, of that, you know, on the podcast. And, and I like how you say, you know, I don't you, you don't do everything crappy. You probably do the, the things that are not priorities for you, not as strongly, but you do many things. <laughs> you know, the important things very well. And, and that's, you know, a great lesson. And you're right. It is unfortunate that not everyone can always outsource the way they want to, especially at the start of their careers. But it's, you know, it, it, it's it's like a double-edged sword because if you couldn't have outsourced, then you, you might not have been able to accomplish what you accomplished. So it's always a difficult conundrum there sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's a good point about writing. I mean, obviously it'd be great to start writing when you're young and many people do it. But for me, I, I was too much, A, I was too much of an idiot to write when I was young. And B, I didn't, I didn't get the experience that I needed for my first novel until I'd really lived uh, a lot longer. So I think, I think starting when you're, um, I, I'm sure as hell, I'm not going to refer to myself as middle-aged because I don't like that. But I think starting when you're not super young is, is good. That's interesting. And, and again, um, you know, sometimes we get stuck in a groove, right? You're doing one thing and there, there seems to be one logical path, but I think it's important for even those of us who are in careers where there is one traditional trajectory that can be successful to remember that, you know, it's not necessarily the only trajectory. And, and you may go back to medicine sometime more fully, or you may not. I don't know. Do you have, do you have ideas or are you just trying not to make plans? Um, I didn't really intend to leave, but my agent secured a, another two-book contract for me after my first novel was published. And at that point, I kind of had to make a decision. Either I wanted to make a serious go of writing, in, in which case it meant accepting this contract, because my publisher is, is Penguin Random House. They're the world's biggest publisher. It's not likely that I'm going to find a, you know, a better opportunity than what I already have. But I could not commit to that time frame you know, two more books, two more medical fiction books, and still work in the ER. So I, I decided to put it on hold for a couple of years and see what happens with the novels. And then I would love to go back. I do, I do really miss it. I, I loved my job. Yeah. So what does a day in the life look for you now, uh, right now? And because obviously writing is 
sometimes one of those things that's difficult to do as a day job in that it's somewhat nebulous uh, in terms of, well, I have a book due in, let's say, eight months, but, you know, eight months, what am I, what am I doing up till that point? So I'm curious how, how you structure your days now. Well, I, I start off with a big festival of dysfunction, which is getting all the children up and dressed and fed and out of the house. <laughs> and none of us, none of us like that. But once that, once they are gone, um, then I really buckle down to work. And that means the summers are not very productive for me work-wise. But I do try to do some form of exercise for a half an hour in the morning. And, you know, I inhale my coffee and then I go up to the computer and I start writing. But that being said, there is so much involved in publishing that is not sitting there writing. I was really astonished at how phenomenally time-consuming it is. Um, when my book came out, first of all, I did a lot of travel to promote the book. I did a, a, a slew of interviews, more than I can possibly remember, um, podcasts like this one and radio interviews and television interviews and, and blogger interviews and newspapers and just so much written stuff. And there's also, there's a huge element of self-promotion in writing. You know, I wish it was that the publisher did everything, but they really expect the authors to do a lot of their own promotion. So, you know, they gave me a 40 page document or actually, I guess my agent did a 40 page document on social media and um, websites and, you know, all that kind of thing. And all that takes a lot of time. My website takes a lot of time to maintain. And I also do a lot of other writing now. I write opinion articles and I blogged for a year about the, the process of publishing and, and what the publishing industry is like. And I, you know, I, I write, um, articles for websites, sometimes medical, sometimes on writing. Um, and all that stuff takes a lot of time. So I can focus pretty intensely for a few hours and then I need a break and then I get back into it. And then the kids are home from school and, and my brain is fried and I do nothing else. <laughs> do, you set, do you set yourself like a word target per day or per week um, as you're, as you're working through these, these novels? No, I don't. And that relates to kind of a peculiarity of the writing process, which is almost all writers divide themselves into two categories. That you're either a plotter, where you outline and you know ahead of time what you're going to write, or you're a pantser, seat of your pants person, and you have no clue what you're going to write. And that is me. And so I wind up writing a huge amount of stuff that gets cut or that needs to be revised or that... Um, sends me off in a totally different direction. And, and so it's not, for me, it's not so much about word count as it is making some kind of coherent progress in the, you know, giant disaster that's my current manuscript. <laughs> so it's more like if you've sat there for some amount of time and you've put a bunch of stuff on the page to work on later, then that's been a successful day. Not like, oh, I did chapter, you know, one segment B or something like that. Yeah. And sometimes I just spend all day going back and rewriting what I've already written as I, get a more clear sense of where I'm going. Well, I mean, that's so, it's, it's so interesting to hear that because I mean, your book felt incredibly cohesive and your characters were very, I don't know, they were very real and very consistent throughout. So um, despite your, despite what you're saying, you obviously did a great job kind of pulling it all together. Cause I wouldn't but have yet yeah. necessarily. It, it took Kimberly, a lot of revision. <laughs> I was going to say, Kimberly, I think I read somewhere that you had like 200,000 words that you cut down to a hundred thousand or something like that. I mean, that may have been an exaggeration, but uh, it, it was that roughly what happened with queen of hearts. 
Yeah, I probably went through dozens of drafts. Um, and then when I um, signed with the publisher, they actually, as, as a condition of them acquiring the book, they actually requested me to rewrite pretty much the entire second half of the book with a different plot line. So that changed almost everything in the book. <laughs> and then I tend to be wordy. Yeah, I'm a word nerd. I like, I like complex sentence structure and interesting vocabulary. And um, so my poor editor had to cut down a lot. <laughs> Well, that's so fascinating, curious. though, that the, the plot was different um, when when it was uh, acquired. Yeah, are we allowed to know? The, am I allowed to know the alternate plot line? Because if anybody's read the book, I'm sure they are dying to to know. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking I'm, what I might do is someday publish some of the excised chapters oh, on my website. Cool. Yes. Um, but the the original um, plot, first of all, Emma was not quite. She really got thrown under the bus in the second draft. Yes. Um, yes. And the original version, my original, original version, had Zadie's husband as a point of view character. He was a much bigger, more pivotal character. Um, there was an incident that happened in his past before he and Zadie were married that kind of drove the plot line. And that that was a major thing that got cut out. Zadie's family in Kentucky had bigger parts, um, you know, and all that completely went by the wayside. Um, in the original version, the things that happened to Emma in the OR did not happen. And that, I don't want to say too much in case somebody yeah, hasn't yeah. read don't the book. Spoilers. But, don't get spoilers, but okay. But, uh, okay. yeah, my publisher really wanted me to write some medical things that were so hard to write. Like, I, I just was cringing <laughs> the entire time I was doing those Emma chapters because I um, – <laughs> You know, I empathize so deeply with her when the, you know, the bad thing happened in the hospital. Also, her husband was the best character. I mean, not the best, but one of the best. I loved him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I loved him, too. Yeah. He, he was I one of my favorites. I, I really, really regretted that he is not real. <laughs> Me, too. For real. Well, it's, it's just interesting to hear because I know we have this idea of books being what they are and, and emerge from, I don't know, like divine <laughs> cast down and, and they carved on stone or something like that. But it was very much a, an organic process. And it's always about, well, we have this idea, but it has to be marketable too. And part of the marketing is, you know, that there needs to be a strong central character. And sometimes um, it needs to be specifically aimed at a demographic. And so if there's too much from a character in another demographic, that character needs to go. Um, and, and yeah, the business of publishing is itself very fascinating. So, yeah, um, on how much you guys both do that is not the writing part. Cause you're right from an outsider. We just think, Oh, you know, like you sit it there, you sit there and you write and then you like forward it to someone they, and you edit it and that's it. But you know, now I've learned there's so much other stuff yeah we're just getting the world to care about your book which is <laughs> as, as Kimberly was saying like her 40 page document on social media do, oh yeah do, it's phenomenally how difficult feel, how do you feel about that stuff Kimberly? was it hard to be like you know my book is awesome you should read it um when when that's not obviously what you were trained in your life to do Oh, yeah. Um, I got really sick of myself around the time that the book was published because, I, I mean, I've really always lived in this little cave of obscurity, and I've never had any kind of spotlight shined on to me. And while on the one hand, I was extremely grateful that anyone cared about the book, on the other hand, I was like, I am boring myself to death. Like, I don't want to hear another word about myself. I'm, <laughs> I'm sick of talking about myself. It's hard to be self-promoting all the time. I mean, especially for women, we are not 
inherently predisposed toward that a lot of the time. And I don't know, it, it did feel odd. Um, but on the other hand, I'm kind of a social person and I, I loved meeting people online. Like that part has been really cool. I feel like I had this big network of, you know, book nerd friends all over the globe. Now I started this campaign on Instagram to have people take pictures of my book cover because it's so pretty. And, um, I literally have all seven continents now and dozens and dozens of countries. And, uh, you know, I have somebody, people I can reach out to in Antarctica and photographed your book. <laughs> yeah. So that happened. There's, um, an ER doctor on McMurdo station that one of my friends knew and, um, asked if they would take the picture, which was just awesome. Like yeah. <laughs> four nights, it was that. That is amazing. Well, I would say, you know, there's that fine line of self-promotion where, where someone starts to feel over the top. And um, Kimmery and Laura, neither of you have ever come close to that line. I follow you both on Instagram. So <laughs> you can both toot your horns more and you'll be fine. So don't worry about it. Well, this is awesome. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, do you have any more questions for, for Kimmery? No, I am super inspired, and I am excited to see what she comes out with next. I will pre-order it, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Uh, what what kind of timeline are we looking at, Kimmery? When, when do you think the next novel will be out? Um, so if all goes well, it'll be early 2020 for the next one, and then early 2021 for the one following that. Brilliant. Well, everyone, mark it on your calendars now. Uh, the one wonderful thing about our listeners is that we are planners. There's probably people who have their 2020 calendar already. Um, so uh, they, they can put it down. So we, Yeah, and so the next one, I, I'll just tell you quickly. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, the yeah. main character of the next book is um, a minor character from the Queen of Hearts, one of the <gasps> med school friends named Georgia. Um, she's a urologist in Charleston. Oh, I remember that. Okay, that's very exciting. Oh, good. So you can somehow you can somehow bring back Emma's husband in some way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I haven't yet, but that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't had enough of him. So, okay. All right. So we are going to um, invite you to partake in our Love of the Week segment, which we do um, every week on our podcast. And just a reminder, it can be anything. It can be music, a book, a podcast, a item of food, or like some general concept, anything. And I will go first. Actually, Laura, I'm going to switch my loves of the week because I realized um, why not include my medical author book on this episode rather than my other episode. Um, I just finished Atul Gawande's Being Mortal, so kind of not the same as The Queen of Hearts. Um, but I thought it was a great um, read. I Actually, we started a book club for our residents, and that was the assigned book, and I had until Friday to read it. And um, I it went actually very quickly. It's not a terribly long book, and it's all about kind of the end of life and how we do how we do it wrong in some ways and how we might make it better. That's a great one. Yeah. Well, mine is not like that at all. <laughs> We're uh, recording this in, in, in fall and up here in the north, you know, things start getting chilly in the morning. And when we uh, renovated our bathroom last spring, we decided to put in heated floors. And oh, oh, it's just like oh. the most luxurious thing ever to get up and walk onto a nice, toasty um, bathroom floor. Although it took quite a bit of work because, you know, obviously they had to replace the whole floor, which they were going to do anyway. But uh, then there's a timer so that it goes, at, you know, when you're waking up in the morning that it will be warm when you wake up. But uh, for a while, the timer wasn't working. And so it was losing like eight minutes a day, uh, which at, for the first two days doesn't matter so much. But by like day five, you're 40 minutes off when you <laughs> wanted your floor to be hot. Uh, so we obviously had to get that uh, 
get that switched. But uh, it, it's been great. So that's that's my love of the week. All right, Kimberly, how about you? Okay, I know I was supposed to have thought about this, and I'm gonna have to, you know, <laughs> true to form, do you it can on the fly. It. <laughs> Um, okay, I, I got two. Um, the first is that I am getting a book in the mail today um, that I'm excited about. It's Michael Lewis's new book is out. Do you guys know who he is? I have not read him. Oh, he's fantastic. He writes a lot of narrative nonfiction, and I'm sure you've heard of some of it. Um, the Blind Side and Money oh, yeah. Boy. Yeah, yeah. He started off writing a lot of financial nonfiction, um, but he but he writes on a lot of different topics, and he's just an incredibly gifted writer. So I'm excited about that. His new book is called The Fifth Risk. And then my other thing I'm excited about is um, my husband and I are planning a trip with the kids to New Orleans for New Year's Eve. And we're friends. My husband's a sports medicine guy and we're, we're friends with the um, doctor for the Saints and we're big Panthers fans since we live in Charlotte and the Saints are playing the Panthers and we're going to go to the game and run around on the field and show our kids the city and um, it just sounds so much fun I can't wait wow that does sound fun great exciting upcoming adventure well cool well thank you so much Kimberly for joining us we really appreciate it well thank you thank you I'm I'm really honored that you asked me oh our listeners are gonna love it thank you again our Q&A for this episode um, is somewhat timely uh, because it is about to begin that lovely wintry season filled with viruses and snot and all that good stuff. So one of our listeners uh, sent this question via Instagram. How do you keep your kids healthy during the winter? And if not, how do you manage sick days? Now, we did address some of this before, but I have, I guess, a little more to add. Do you want to go first? Yeah, well, I mean, we hope to keep kids healthy during the winter, but it's sort of... Uh inevitable that they won't. <laughs> this is the reality of, of kids and, and winter. And, and even if they somehow manage to stay healthy the entire winter, uh, you might have snow days or other such things along those lines. Um, so consider this your public service announcement to think about your backup plans. Um, what are you going to do when stuff goes wrong this winter? Because it's, you know, anyone can manage time that goes perfectly. It's, it's the people who manage to stay productive and keep life moving along when things don't go as planned, uh, who are the, the real time masters. In, in terms of keeping kids healthy, I, I'm a big fan of hand sanitizer. I mean, we keep it everywhere. Like, we have, kids have little bags of hand san- bottles of hand sanitizer on their backpacks so they can um, use it, you know, at any point. I'm not sure they always do, but... Uh, you know, definitely with my little boys, I'm always, you know, did you wash your hands after going to the bathroom? Uh, they seem less uh, hardwired to do that. So lots of lots of that. But honestly, I mean, one of the reasons we wound up hiring a, a nanny for the first time many years ago, our oldest child went to daycare. Um, and the first winter, I think there was like five weeks of illness um, that he could not go to daycare. Uh, and, and so that's really hard to absorb. It's hard to me, for me to absorb it as a self-employed individual. Um, I can't even imagine if I was, you know, working for a company how I'd do that. Um, so, so think about that, right? Like, um, you know, obviously having a caregiver in your home is, is good. That makes sense if you have young kids. I think what people definitely get tripped up on is when their kids are in school, because then their their child care solution probably doesn't go for the whole day and isn't instantly available for the whole day. You might have a you know afternoon sitter or something like that. Uh, so then the question is, well, what do you do when the kids are homesick? Uh, so if if one party, if you've got two parents, um, has an option to occasionally work from home, or if that is something that you can negotiate for, um, that is a real lifesaver. Uh, if you know 
I would say if it always winds up being the same person, then the party who does go into the office needs to work out a way for the other person to have some backup time, whether that's that they cover the evenings, the other person comes home from work early, so the uh, party who's you know been t- caring for the sick kid gets some time to do whatever, covering the weekends, et cetera. But that, that's something that you definitely want to think about as well. Yeah. Depending on where you live, uh, there are emergency babysitting services that can be incredibly helpful in this situation. And I have now actually had the pleasure of using one. It's actually in multiple cities. So, you, I mean, you know, I can't – your mileage may vary, but it, the one I used was called the Babysitting Company, and I believe it's in Miami, New York maybe Philadelphia and California, anyway, where you can call with 30 to 60 minutes notice and say, like, I need emergency care giving, and that includes they will upcharge you for a sick child, but they'll do it, um, and they'll send someone to your house. And, yes, it can be expensive for that day, but, you know, if it's that versus hiring someone, it's certainly going to be the cheaper option, I guess, unless you spend your kid spends five weeks out of daycare, Laura, then it yeah. might, might be a wash. Yeah, well, and but you can also have a backup person yourself, too. I mean, because I think some people might be, you know, I would assume it's the same as, like, hiring a hotel sitter. Like, they screen these people. They work with these people. These are, you know, sitters that they've, been, you know, been sending out on jobs for years, and, and so they know them, and, and, you know, you can rely on that. But um, if, if you're concerned about that, I mean, obviously, you can have a backup option. Um, you just need to figure out how you're going to make that work. Where maybe it's a, a neighbor who's willing, you know, wants to earn some extra money or an extended family member. Or, you know, if you do have a, a portfolio of sitters, as we call it, and you have some people who do occasionally have some um, last minute availability. I mean, you could just text the group and see if, you know, somebody responds. Uh, whoever responds first gets the, the gig if they're up for it. Um, but, but yeah, figure out, you know, what can go wrong and, and what you can do. Um, it's true. Something like a college student can be really helpful because, you know, they sometimes have to, and if you have a group and if you're, if you're paying enough, you could probably get someone interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, and obviously this is, you know, if a kid is really, really sick and, you know, you need the parent dealing with them and dealing with the doctor visits and things like that, that's sort of a separate issue. We're more talking about like the kid, you know, has uh, diarrhea or something and can't go to daycare or um, is yeah, had a fever and, and it's, yeah. Yeah, that uh, it's not a, a serious fever, but it's such that you can't go to school, um, but not such that they need um, a parent around them 24-7 tending, you know, for that. So that could happen, too. You know, figure out what to do with serious illnesses as well, but that's sort of more something you know that you would be taking a, a sick day and dealing with. So, all right, well, this has been Best of Both Worlds, uh, episode 65. We've been talking with novelist Kimmery Martin about uh, her life, her, her background of uh, being a physician, transitioning into novelist. And we'll be back next week with more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.